You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are revisiting a topic that has caused us a lot of agita, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. It is such an important topic, but it's a topic that no matter how we approach it, controversy seems to follow. But there's more science that we have to dig into, and we are very fortunate to welcome a very special guest today who can um, talk about some ongoing research and raise some, some awareness and answer some questions on this topic. So the topic is infant feeding, but more specifically, bottle feeding myths and misconceptions. And if you recall, last season, uh, we were joined by Drs. Anthony Porto, who's a pediatric gastroenterologist, and Dr. Dina DiMaggio, who's a pediatrician. Uh, We had them on the podcast to discuss infant feeding in the U.S. Uh, We discussed the formula shortage, which was obviously a big, big deal last year. Um, We dug into the Formula Act. We talked about breastfeeding. We talked about formula feeding. And we addressed a ton of myths and misconceptions. And this week, we are going to circle back to that conversation with Dr. Allison Ventura to discuss bottle feeding specifically. All right, Dr. Ventura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So a little bit about our guest for today. Uh, Dr. Ventura is a professor of kinesiology and public health at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology with an emphasis in biology and a minor in community nutrition from the University of California, Davis. She holds master's degrees in nutrition and human development and family studies and a PhD in human development and family studies from the Pennsylvania State University. Her expertise is in early childhood nutrition and development with a particular focus on understanding how parent-child feeding interactions influence the development of children's eating behaviors, food preferences, and health outcomes. Allison, again, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. As you just heard, Allison has a lot of experience in this space. And, you know, as Jess alluded to, every time we talk about food and nutrition, particularly when it comes to infants or early development, no matter what data are presented, it can be controversial. But Allison is going to talk to us a little bit about bottle feeding, why you might opt to bottle feed, some of the myths and misconceptions. Um, And I think just, you know, getting people a better understanding of of why you might opt to bottle feed in certain instances. And so, you know, there, I think some people forget that you can bottle feed both breast milk and formula. And there are a variety of reasons why an infant may be fed in that manner. Um, So maybe, Allison, you can just quickly summarize some of the, the top reasons, you know, some of the more obvious ones, maybe, you know, some that are less obvious. Great. So, um, yeah, in some ways it's, it's great to live in today, right? Because we do have a lot of choice in how, how we feed our babies, which was not always the case and a lot of safe choices. Right. Um, and so, 
there are so many reasons. Some of it might just be personal preference and that's fine. You know, maybe some families just, they want to do some breastfeeding, but want a little bit of flexibility. Um, we know that some families want to share feeding responsibilities either because they just want to, or maybe they need to, because mom's going to work. So she can't always be there to breastfeed her baby from the breast. So that means that, um, her partner, uh, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whoever may need uh, to, to feed the baby. We also know that for some families, breastfeeding can, can be very hard to establish. Um, we want to do everything we can to support them to achieve their, their breastfeeding goals. But um, sometimes families really struggle with this or they don't have access to the support they need. And so um, bottle feeding becomes you know, what they have to do to, to make sure that their, their baby's fed. So many, many different complicated reasons. And we also know that this um, changes over time, that families, very few families are just breastfeeding or just formula feeding, right? That it's it's very complicated and changing over the course of the, the baby's first couple of years, um, which is, I'll talk about later, I'm sure, that makes it hard to study. Um, if yeah, no, anyway. absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think you bring up, you bring up a lot of really good points, right? There's a lot of obvious reasons why, you know, whether it's breast milk in a bottle or formula in a bottle, like, you know, obviously if there's, you know, people that aren't producing milk, you know, they might want to participate in, in feeding the baby. And there's also socioeconomic factors that are involved in this as well. And so there was a Kaiser Family Foundation survey that was, that was investigating babies born in, in 2018 in the U.S. And they found that um, 54% um, received formula by bottle by three months old. And that was either as a supplement to breast milk or as exclusive nutrition. And actually within that same data set, um, they actually identified that individuals or families that were of lower socioeconomic status, so low-income families, um, you know, infants um, and families of color, as well as rural communities, infants, um, were more likely to use formula either as a supplement to breast milk or as exclusive nutrition. Um, Allison, maybe you can touch on a few thoughts related to why we see some of those disparities um, and then you know, maybe Jess, you want to segue into some of the misconceptions. Yeah. So, you know, I, some of it comes down to just broader, like systemic issues, right? That these lower income, lower SES families are probably have less access to things like paid parental leave. They might have um, six weeks of unpaid leave and then they've got to get back to work um, because they just can't afford more than that. And that's a real deterrent to breastfeeding. We want, you know, we have, um, things like the WIC program that serves these um, low, low SES families and really provides robust breastfeeding support and pumps and access to lactation consultants. It's all, it's all really important. I think very helpful to many families, but um, sometimes it's not enough when you have these really heavy factors that are pushing against your ability to breastfeed. Um, we know there might be less um, you know, family support or social support for breastfeeding. We know these are really important as well to have those kind of broader social networks that are able to support the mother to, to be able to um, achieve breastfeeding. So I think it, it is very complex, but a lot of it comes down to um, equity and access to to research re resources and policy supports for breastfeeding. So, you know, Allison, I, I love the the points you touched on. And I think even aside from, you know, WIC providing these resources, if someone is struggling to produce milk or get their baby to latch, you know, 
these people of lower socioeconomic status might not have the resources to get additional lactation support. And so their option is, you know, they have to feed their child, right? So, so bottle feeding, whether it is breast milk that they acquired through, you know, a milk bank or formula, you know, that's, that's the feasible way. And my stepsister, she had a child very, very young and she was a call. She was a student at the time. And so she qualified for WIC and, and they, we're able to provide her with formula and with bottles and with all of the things that without that financial resource, you know, her baby would not have been nourished. So I was actually going to share something very similar to that. So I have two kids. Um, I actually loved breastfeeding. It was a, an amazing bonding experience for me. Um, but shortly after I had my son, Dylan, I noticed I was having, I, I was struggling. He wasn't latching well. My supply was low. I always say, you know, warning, I'm about to share, I guess, to TMI, although there's really no TMI on this podcast. I just physiologically have flat nipples. So I needed to use that little plastic shield. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Allison, that, you know, basically makes uh, the, the nipple protrude more and it allows the, the baby to, to latch more easily. And I was able, I had the means, um, I had access to a lactation consultant and I went and it, you know, it, 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 it helped me, you know, it did help me increase my supply. I learned ways to help um, Dylan latch. Um, but then there were times when even after I tried all the things, you know, things weren't working. And so I ended up doing some, um, you know, I supplemented with formula. Um, so I just want to be very clear here. You know, I think some people think that we're sort of advocating for formula over breastfeeding. That is certainly not the, not the truth. Um, that is not the case. That's not how we feel. But I think, you know, Andrea, as you raised and Allison, as you said, there are so many more um, factors to consider that may impact and may be outside of the control of the person trying to feed their baby. So, um, Allison, let's segue here. So last season on our infant feeding episodes, again, you know, that was sort of at the height of the formula shortage. It caused a ton of panic. Understandably, a lot of people were really freaking out. And unfortunately, a lot of people were looking into some unsafe feeding practices. Uh, they were obtaining breast milk from unknown sources. They were making homemade formula, um, giving cow milk to babies. Those, those recipes circulating from like the 1950s. And it's like, no, it's not sterile, not sanitary. Right, you know? right. We get the, the, the frustration, the panic the the desire to you know look into any and all options to feed your child right mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right when you have that that moment of panic you know you just obviously you need to to feed your child right so it's not that we're judging those people it's just that you know of course we know that a lot of those things are are unsafe um and so that's that's why we were uh trying to raise awareness about some of the dangers so we actually did it was like the highlight of of my life um an instagram live with jen robertson from schitt's creek um she played uh mrs shit uh <laughs> she's also on Ginny and georgia yes um, yes yes anyway um and so we basically we discussed um our respective infant feeding journeys and a lot of the stigma around bottle feeding in particular and so we used a phrase that i'm honestly scared to even utter now we said fed is best 
Okay. And our intention was to, to make clear that we're not saying that, you know, any one thing is better than, or you should feel shame if you do, you know, one way of feeding versus another, you do what you have to do to feed your baby. Right. Obviously the only thing that matters is that your baby is receiving proper nutrition, no matter what that looks like. So can you chat about, <laughs> just share some of your insight about that and maybe some of the falsehoods and the myths that surround um, bottle feeding in particular, like where we think they came, they came from? Yeah, I, I was going to say like the, the, the top three that I think we hear the most is if you feed your baby with a bottle, you don't form that bond that you're supposed to form. Um, also, there's going to be nutritional deficiencies. Um, we did obviously address a lot of that on the other episodes, but it's always worth, worth revisiting. And then, of course, um, the claim that if, you know, infants are fed formula because the, the sugar and the fat ratios are a little bit different than what's in breast milk, that they're going to become obese. Um, I think those are the top three, maybe. I agree that these are so important to address because we really want parents to have a realistic perspective of the potential implications of their feeding choices and experience, right? It's, it's really important. We don't want to scare them. We don't want, we don't want to be too scary about what, um, what we might or might not know. And so, you know, I think ultimately from my perspective, the source of many of these notions is research on infant feeding and some breakdowns in how that research is communicated to the public. Um, and we see this across so many public health domains, right? That, that research can be really nuanced. And sometimes the scientists are very careful in the language that we put into a publication, but it's not sexy language. <laughs> um, and so what actually gets put into the headline or the recommendations or what a clinician tells their parents can, can kind of diverge from that in ways that are a little overgeneralized or oversimplistic. And so with infant feeding in particular, it's tricky because we're very limited in our ability to do randomized clinical trials, which is our, our gold standard where we're, we're taking one group and for, you know, in, in theory, we would have one group that we say, you breastfeed your baby for 12 months. And we have another group, we say, you formula feed your baby for 12 months and let's see what happens. And that would give us great evidence about growth differences and cognitive differences and all these things we're concerned about. But we just, it's not realistic. We can't do that. It's unethical. So we're never going to have this like golden data to definitively tell us that one feeding method is better than the other. And so, you know, the next best thing that we can do is these observational studies or epidemiological studies where we're following families and looking at their feeding choices and patterns and trying to relate those to babies' outcomes. And um, there have been many studies of this type and they do, many of them do find differences in growth outcomes between formula and breastfed babies, but that data, those data are limited in many ways because they're not our, our causal evidence that we would hope for. I'm going to just jump in because I love what you're saying, but I think, you know, for our listeners, you know, what Allison is saying is that when you're looking at these observational studies, there are confounding variables, right? Factors that are outside of the researcher's ability to control. So, you know, if you've got a group of people that are breastfeeding and a group of people that are bottle feeding, whether that's breast milk or formula, um, there could be economic disparities, there could be racial disparities, there could be access to healthcare disparities. And those are things that you 
because it's not a randomized controlled trial, you can't parse out, okay, well, are these growth or developmental outcomes a result of how they were fed or these other factors in play? And of course, we do our best just from a data science statistical perspective to then control for those things or adjust for those things in the analysis stage of the research um, by using proxies. And, you know, we, we do our best to um, to think of all the variables that, that we could control for, but that's also imperfect. You know, there are certain things that we can't account for, that we can't measure, or that we're maybe um, improperly measuring. And so that is why, just to sort of really underscore what you're saying, Allison, that's why, yes, um, RCTs and experimental designs are is superior to observational studies. Yeah. And especially with something like breastfeeding, right? Like we know that uh, these families who are able to meet breastfeeding recommendations are often um, more affluent. They often have higher, higher education levels. The mom might be more nutritionally conscious or have better nutrition knowledge. So these are all things that are directly related to then our infant outcomes of cognitive development and um, nutritional outcomes, right? So like, even though, as you said, Jess, we, we try our best to parse that out in the, the statistics we run, you, you, you can't fully you know, account for all of that. So, um, so we just have to be careful with, with how we interpret these studies. Um, and so, you know, and I can say that there uh, is really no evidence to support this idea that, um, breastfeeding leads to better bonding, <laughs> um, that I've, I've actually looked, you know, very clearly for the literature and there's really no good studies to suggest this. So I think I can confidently say that like bonding can occur regardless of whether you're breastfeeding or bottle feeding your baby, there's broader factors at play there. Um, there, there is some evidence of these growth differences between formula and, and um, breast milk fed babies. But, you know, again, as I mentioned before, I think another important thing to acknowledge is that the, the data that we have on early feeding practice patterns can be really messy, that um, often in studies, we, we have to simplify things to actually be able to cohesively say, okay, this group is breastfeeding and then this group is formula feeding. But whether that actually reflects the reality of what that family is doing is um, often not truly the case. And so again, I think some of these studies can be limited because they look at breastfeeding at three months and see if that relates to weight status at 12 months. Um, but did that family really breastfeed for 12 full months? Probably right. not. Um, right. And, and there's so many other factors, right? Like all of the other day to day, like, you know, you're not just feeding a baby in a vacuum and doing nothing else, right? There's, you know, enrichment activities, there's, you know, what else is happening in the house? I mean, there's so many things that you just can't parse out simply from collecting, you know, these longitudinal observation, you know, data points. Exactly. So I, I think the reality is that there may be some aspects of, you know, this research that are true for some people um, in some certain situations, but we have to be careful about overgeneralizing them. We really, really can't overstate these findings. So I think we really have to maybe be informed by them, but also kind of explore these issues in many different ways and considering all these other things that Jess and Andrea, you both brought up in terms of the broader environment and parent-child relationships and these other things that we know are really important for these outcomes we're interested in. Such a great summary. So I'm not a parent. I have seven cats, including one on my lap who will not leave me alone. So, you know, I've never been in the thick of it. I mean, certainly I have, you know, step-siblings who have children and I, you know, I've been very close with, with my nieces and, and all that. But I never really, you know, I mean, logically 
or even emotionally really understand why there is such a stigma about bottle feeding. Like for me, for as a scientist, it's you know, make sure they're nourished, make sure they're getting their vitamins and minerals and make sure they're getting the fats they need for brain development. I mean, it's the same thing you do with a a pet, right? You know, as a kitten, you know, they need special food with extra fat and protein and all the different ratios. And we know that formula science has, you know, done that where it can replicate the, the combination of sugars and fats and so on that are in breast milk. So, you know, so maybe you can break this down for me, who's really, you know, I guess, you know, grateful that maybe I haven't been subjected to some of this kind of societal stigma because it's never been a topic for me. But, you know, coming from an outside as a woman and as a scientist, it's like, well, just feed the baby, however works for everybody involved. Like, so, so maybe you can break down some of the, the historical context of why this is so heated and, and, you know, what's really happened over the last, you know, I guess several decades. Just as an aside, I do want to address what you just said in terms of like the nutrition, because we still have so much to learn about breast milk. It is such an amazing, like complicated substance. And so in some ways, yes, we have like had a lot of great science around formula and getting to the nitty gritties of, you know, the micro and macronutrients and trying to match breast milk. But there are I think probably a lot of factors in breast milk that we'll, we may never replicate in formula because we know that breast milk conveys the flavor of the mother's diet. So the baby's learning from the mother, like, oh, we like garlic in my family. <laughs> we love carrots. <laughs> I learned to like this. Oh, so that's why I like garlic so much. No. <laughs> and there's hormones that are being transmitted. Like, yeah. And there's passive antibody transfer, which you can't replicate in formula. So those things are really, I think, important to consider. And and, um, again, we still have so much to learn about all of this, but probably do convey some advantage with with breast milk and breastfeeding um, that we should definitely appreciate, but also learn like when that can't happen, what else can we do for families? Right. And not, and just really quickly, and not to, to shame or make certain people who either choose not to, or who can't breastfeed their child feel like they're somehow, you know, their kids are at a disadvantage, right? So we just don't want to set up that, that shame or that guilt. Exactly. We have enough of that. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Allison. Yeah. And I mean, specifically related to these feelings of stigma um, and, and stigmatizing formula and bottle feeding. No, I think, yeah, part of it is that we've had this really interesting history with infant feeding that it used to be, you know, before the 1800s, families would find alternative ways to feed their babies, whether it was a wet nurse or they'd make some sort of concoction, but um, this this wasn't that safe and not not desirable. And so with this increasing, you know, development in the, the science of nutrition and, and research into pediatrics, um, we've finally in the late 1800s, early 1900s, started developing what we now know today as commercial formulas, which are much more science-based and regulated and much more safe for babies. And so when these commercial formulas came on the market, their use really increased dramatically because pediatricians were recommending them to families. And we had more and more mothers who needed to work or wanted to work. Um, And so it was a good alternative for them to still have a family, but they'd be able to feed their babies. And so we saw a really steady increase in um, formula use and decrease in breastfeeding um, up until about the 1970s, where at that point there were very low rates of breastfeeding. 
And this caused a lot of concern because we also started to have science also showing us, you know, breastfeeding is actually really good in many ways. There's a lot of benefits and maybe we don't want all our babies to be fed formula. So then we had this kind of scientific public health cultural swing back in the other direction of like, wait a minute, we really need to probably protect and and promote breastfeeding. Um, And that led to a lot of messaging around promoting breastfeeding policy level measures that were protecting breastfeeding and and really making sure that that you know women had had the supports in place that they needed to breastfeed. So there's, I think, always been this tension between formula and breast breastfeeding, formula feeding, breastfeeding. Because to protect breastfeeding, that means that we probably need to try to reduce formula feeding. But if we're promoting formula feeding, then we're not promoting breastfeeding. So so there's this kind of natural. Um, tension in place that that has kind of led to this idea that formula and bottle feeding are a lesser choice for babies. And so I think it will continue to be a tension because we really, we do want to protect and support um, breastfeeding, but we also want to protect and support families' abilities to live the life they need to live and and, um, and make the choices they need to for their babies. And so I think you know, that there there can be some black and white thinking that again gets oversimplified when we're communicating to families that one is good and the other is bad. And um, there some of these policies that have come into place, I think directly affect health communicators' ability to educate around bottle feeding, that there are a lot of policies that say, you know, maybe you can't offer formula in certain settings, you can't have bottles or pictures of bottles. And so that means that we have really robust ways to educate around breastfeeding, but not around bottle feeding. And, and many um, people who work with with young families maybe don't don't really know how to talk about bottle feeding. They're afraid to because they think it might compromise breastfeeding support. And so this can further perpetuate that stigma. So for those people who do end up bottle feeding, let let's talk about some good bottle feeding practices. Can you share some insights? Yeah. And so I first want to think more broadly about like, what are our goals for infant feeding, right? Because I think that's an important starting point. And um, really, it's it's not just about nutrition. It's not just about getting enough calories and, and uh, vitamins into your baby. That That's a big part of it, that we want to make sure that babies consume enough milk to meet their growth and developmental needs. But um, early feeding is so much more than just nutrition, that we know that this is the majority of where parents and infants spend their time together early on, right? Infants are feeding upwards of eight to 12 times a day, maybe more. Um, each feeding might be 10 to 20 minutes, so it's, it's or even more. Um, so it's, it's a time where, where parents and babies are, are, have a lot of opportunity to build relationships, um, to bond through skin-to-skin contact, eye contact, social interaction. These high-quality feeding interactions support social, emotional, and cognitive development when parents are talking to their baby, um, you know, teaching their baby new words or, or whatever it is that might just occur in these high-quality interactions. So, so that's ultimately what we want to create with any feeding interaction, um, regardless of whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding. And we also want to make sure that um, there's these early supports for the development of healthy eating behaviors that like ultimately our, our goal, one of our goals for, for everyone is that they're able to eat when hungry and stop when full, right? This is an important way that we should regulate our calories. Um, and, and we know that babies can be pretty good at that and that they're able to, you know, regulate the amount they eat to support healthy growth if we, if we um, help them in that. And especially in today's food environment where there's so many prompts to eat, so many prompts to overeat, like 
we want to be a little bit resilient to that. So, so ultimately we want parents to learn, like it's really important to feed your baby in response to hunger cues and to stop um, in response to fullness cues and not try to get your baby to eat beyond that because then you're potentially overfeeding and not meeting their needs. And so in many ways, breastfeeding is kind of naturally aligned with a lot of these goals um, that make it perhaps less um, effort for parents to achieve this. That if we think about like, and by breastfeeding here, I mean feeding directly from the breast, that we have these like biobehavioral aspects of breastfeeding that, that naturally align with responsive feeding. And the first is that breastfeeding is really a demand to supply system, that there's this really elegant, you know, communication between baby and breast, that the more the baby feeds, the more milk is being made by the breast. And so for a parent to ultimately be successful at breastfeeding, they have to engage in responsive feeding. They have to respond, learn and respond to their baby's hunger and fullness cues um, and feed in the line, a way that's aligned with those to make sure that they're, they're making enough milk. There's also other kind of natural aspects of, of breastfeeding breastfeeding to support this broader idea of responsive feeding and that, you know, the parent has to hold their baby. There's natural skin to skin contact occurring. The baby's typically held at a distance that's natural for eye contact and interaction. So, so there's just this nice alignment between breastfeeding and responsive feeding um, and our feeding goals. But that's not to say that we can't achieve those with bottle feeding. We, we can, we just maybe have to be a little more conscious about it or maybe a little more educated because, um, I mean, the whole point of bottles is to make, make feeding easier in some ways, right? We turn to bottles maybe when breastfeeding isn't going well or it's difficult. And so there are these like quote features of bottles that may make it an easier way to feed the baby, but may not align with these responsive feeding goals that we have. And so um, some of the things that, you know, bottles allow for that we want to be aware of is that they do allow the parent to take more control over feeding, right? The parent has more control over how much milk goes into the bottle. They have more awareness of how much milk is in the bottle and perhaps more control over encouraging their baby to finish that amount of milk, um, which again is not aligned with our idea of responsive feeding. Um, they can feed their baby at a faster pace because babies are naturally more efficient at bottles and parents can choose a faster flow nipple or alter the nipple on the way. So um, the baby can have less control over the feeding and less input into the feeding interaction. Um, we also know that parents have more flexibility to do things like put their baby in an infant seat and prop up the bottle and go make dinner while their, their baby feeds himself. Um, or they can put things other than breast milk or formula in the bottle, like they can add cereal to the bottle or juice or sweetened beverages. So all these things um, are, are not what we want parents to do during bottle feeding because they really diverge from this these goals that we have um, for feeding interactions. So to counter this, you know, I think overall we want bottle feeding to be more like breastfeeding, to mimic some of these beneficial behavioral aspects of breastfeeding um, that are that are aligned with you know promoting promoting healthy outcomes for babies. And so um, some of the specific things that, that we want parents to think about for healthy bottle feeding is um, preparing a developmentally appropriate amount of milk. And that that might be, you know, from what they fed their baby in the past, there might be feeding recommendations to go into it. But um, overall, you know, not making too much milk and also being okay with your baby not finishing all that milk is a, is a huge thing, right? That, that you're going to offer some milk, but then you're going to listen to your baby's cues to understand um, how much of that milk they want to drink and be okay with 
you know, maybe saving the rest of it later or, or letting it go. Um, we still want parents to be feeding in response to hunger cues, to be looking for things like rooting, mouthing, the baby becoming unsettled. And that's when they should offer a bottle. Um, we want parents to hold their babies throughout the feeding, to not prop them up, but to actually hold them in a way so that they maybe can get some skin-to-skin -skin con contact and eye contact and are interacting with their babies and um, refraining from things like watching TV or scrolling on their phone uh, during the feeding. Um, and we want the parent to be engaged during the feeding. We don't want them to be overbearing and like intrusive, but to follow their baby's lead when their baby's making eye contact and smiling, do the same. Um, when their baby needs a break or communicates fullness, take a break um, and, and be okay with the feeding being over. And um, we know that these fullness cues don't always um, get communicated to parents that they sometimes have a, a hard time understanding when their baby's full. But, you know, for younger babies looking for things like decreased muscle tone, slowed sucking, falling asleep. And for older babies, we tend to see these more active cues like turning away from the bottle, pushing it away or becoming distracted probably means that the baby's done feeding. So overall, we want parents to trust that their baby can tell them how much they need during breast or bottle feeding and be okay with following their baby's cues to know that they've fed enough. Thank you so much for that, Allison. I mean, I think you made such such clear distinctions and, you know, I mean, overall, the goals seem similar, right? You're trying to bond and have this experience and get them used to your voice and, you know, be close to them. And I'm kind of chuckling because I have a, a coworker um, who, who used to be on my team and he and his wife have had two kids um, about a year and a half apart. And I remember he was, he was telling me, you know, the first baby would, take like an ounce at a time. And that, you know, even the daycare was like worried something was happening. You know, he wasn't drinking, he wasn't eating, but he would, he would do like an ounce, like very, very frequently throughout the day. Like he loved to snack essentially. Whereas their other baby was doing like six ounces and would just like chug it all down and then just go sleep the rest of the day. And even in the same household, like they had just such different preferences as to what they wanted to do when it came to, to feeding. And I, you know, we, it's just very, very interesting. And, and I love, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to tell you, right. They're going to tell you when they're hungry and, and, you know, you're going to hear it and then they're, mm -hmm. they're going to let you know when they're not hungry anymore. So Allison, we know that you're currently doing some really exciting research, um, on paste feeding. And so can you maybe just explain the difference between paste feeding and responsive feeding and maybe, you know, a little bit about your research and what the science, uh, supports? Sure. Yeah. So I talked about responsive feeding and, and it's really this component of responsive parenting, right? Where there's this real focus on a balance between parents and children in any interaction. The child has some agency to communicate their needs. And we're hoping that parents are able to understand um, the, the cues, the behaviors their, their um, child exhibits and has developmentally appropriate expectations for these early interactions. Um, and responsive feeding, you know, is really characterized by this warmth and synthesis sensitivity, this appreciation that these interactions should be fun and positive. So um, I would say that responsive feeding is maybe somewhat of a broader concept than paste bottle feeding, which is very a specific method for bottle feeding a baby. Um, and it was originally introduced as a way to transition breastfed babies to bottles. So it is kind of very specific to that goal of trying to make bottle feeding more like breastfeeding, um, 
so that the baby kind of is able to pace the feeding in response to needs. So there's a lot of alignment between these ideas of pace bottle feeding and responsive bottle feeding, but they are distinct concepts. And I would say responsive feeding is kind of broader. But essentially during pace bottle feeding, caregivers are taught to um, hold the infant somewhat upright and hold the bottle perpendicular to kind of moderate milk flow. So we're not just pouring milk down into the baby, but actually having the baby kind of actively engaged like they would during breastfeeding, that they have to latch on and start sucking to initiate the feeding. And there is a real focus on feeding in response to hunger cues, pacing the feeding so the baby doesn't eat too fast, and then terminating the feeding when the infant shows satiation cues. And we were interested in this idea of pace bottle feeding, not only because of its alignment with responsive feeding, but because it's such a hot topic right now. I feel like whenever you're looking for bottle feeding education, that's often what you find is that there's videos and educational materials to convey this idea of pace bottle feeding as a, a way to achieve healthy bottle feeding. But, And I'll say in this education, there's often very bold claims made that it that it makes bottle feeding more equivalent to breastfeeding. It slows the pace of feeding. It promotes this control. It reduces risk of spitting up and overfeeding. Um, but I was really surprised to find that there's actually no research on it. There have been no studies to actually test this claim and to to actually illustrate, you know, that these these claims are true. So we were interested in this because it, it is so widely taught, but we always like to make sure that we have evidence behind the things that we're teaching families. So we've been started to conduct research in this area to try to get a sense of whether there there is indeed um, evidence for these these claims that are made around pace bottle feeding. So we're currently conducting a study. And this is really just a first step. So it's kind of a small study um, to, to start looking at this issue and hopefully will lead to larger studies. But within the study that we're doing, we're bringing mothers and their young babies into our lab. And on one day, we ask moms to breastfeed their baby. On another day, we ask them to bottle feed. And on the third, we teach them pace bottle feeding, and then we ask them to use it with their baby. So the third day is a, a pace bottle feeding observation. And so um, we always video record these feeding interactions so that we can go back and analyze them later. And um, we also are assessing how much the babies consume, how long the feeding takes, and the rate of, of feeding. Um, and my favorite part of our research is that we do what's called behavioral coding, where we go back and we watch these videos and we're really able to analyze the, the feeding interaction and the quality of the interaction between the mom and the baby. So from analyzing these videos, we're able to get a sense of how sensitive the mom is to her baby's cues um, and whether she's achieving this idea of responsive feeding that we would hope for. So our ultimate goal is to be able to directly compare pace bottle feeding to both breastfeeding and typical bottle feeding to see if pace bottle feeding is indeed more like breastfeeding than it is to typical bottle feeding. Um, so we'll be able to directly test whether babies you know, consume less at a slower pace and whether moms are more sensitive to infant cues when they learn the pace bottle feeding method. Um, and again, this is this is just an initial step to provide us with some um, some preliminary evidence to this, and then ultimately we'd, we'd like to do some longer term research where we're looking at this over time. If we teach moms these techniques or families in general, you know, all feeders, um, does this help to promote healthier feeding outcomes for babies? This is amazing research, Allison. And, and honestly, it, it's it's funny because um, my husband and I we were just looking through pics of uh, pictures of our kids when they were infants, and I was just going back to 
you know, those, those first few months in particular as a new mom and just freaking out about, you know, is, are they getting enough food? And, you know, and then also just sort of feeling like it was like, I was damned if I did, damned if I didn't. Like I would, you know, I'd be out trying to nurse and I'd be getting, you know, dirty looks for doing that. And then if I switched to, you know, to formula or bottle feeding of, you know, breast milk or formula, I'd have an earful from, you know, someone who said that, oh no, you know, nipple confusion and talking about all these other things. Um, so I think what you're doing is so important. And actually I know we're, we're getting ready to wrap up, but can you just maybe just that topic of nipple confusion I think that that we get that question a lot. Can you just maybe I don't know debunk that or address debunk? That? I was gonna say, <laughs> de- I was gonna say debunk it. I feel like that phrase has been floating around since before I was born, probably. Um, and and I would love love for us to address that for our listeners. Yeah. And that's part of where you know this idea of paste bottle feeding came from was to prevent nipple confusion. Um, and yeah, and it, it, we, um, we don't have good evidence that this happens, you know, and I think it, it comes back to what we've talked about before that like every baby's different. So there, there may be some that prefer the breasts, maybe some that prefer the bottle, maybe some that are good either way. Um, but we don't really have a solid research and, and evidence from the research that we do have that shows us this is a thing. <laughs> um, so, so I think for every parent, they can, you know, get the support they need to trans- transition from breast to bottle, but know that it's it's going to be okay. They'll figure it out. And, and yeah, their baby might show preference for one or the other, but it's not a definite like thing that will happen when you transition from breast to bottle. So I think the big TLDR on this is that nipple confusion, which is this false belief that the baby is not going to be able to switch back and forth. Um, not, not a thing. Um, and you know, if the baby's hungry, they'll figure it out and, you know, maybe they will prefer one or the other, but, uh, people don't have to be panicking about this. Yeah. There's ways to work through it for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Andrea, do you want to take us home or Allison? Actually, I should ask you first, is there anything else that you wanted to share with, with our listeners? And of course we are so grateful, really. Thank you for your time and expertise here. Oh, you're very welcome. No, this was a, a great conversation. I was happy to be able to share some of our knowledge and what we're doing. So thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure to have you on to chat about this very important topic. You know, anybody that's a parent is going to have these sorts of questions. And I think demystifying and destigmatizing, um, you know, all of these topics is, is really critical to improve health outcomes. And before I wrap up, I will just use another anecdote. I was fostering a nursing mother cat and her infant um, kitten. And long after the baby was weaned and eating solid dry food, um, she still liked to go and try to nurse on her mother. And once her nipple fur grew back in, she pretty much was just like drooling on her belly. But you know, it was this bonding, right? They were together in the shelter and they were together and she's still very much attached to her mom even after a year or so. Not just in humans, right? (laughs) So thank you everyone for tuning in today. We hope you learned a thing or two and a special extra thanks to Dr. Allison Ventura for sharing um, all of this really important information about bottle feeding, 
testing and some of the research that is ongoing on on trying to parse out what's real and what's not when we look at differences in feeding techniques. If you want to continue to support our efforts and help us grow the impact and reach of unbiased science, we always welcome your contributions. We have a donation page on our website, a Venmo, and a coffee account. Every dollar helps. We also have some really fun, snarky merch this season, so make sure to check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. As you noticed, we are recording video, and so make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. The handle is at unbiasedscipod. And of course, check out all of our social pages across all platforms, same handle at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a science.